October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast. This episode is called The Good Catholic. Last time we talked about how Robert and John Brinsmead came to America to escape the heat in Australia, and I'm not talking about the weather. In America, the Brinsmeads found supporters, especially with A.L. Hudson's help. We also talked about what the Brinsmead bros were actually teaching and how the church tried to stop it. Spoiler alert, they couldn't. We're going to leave the Brinsmead bros running around America and focus over the next two episodes on how the radical changing nature of the 1960s how it impacted the church, how the church responded to all of the changes that are going on in society. And we're going to begin in the field of politics. In May 1960, the Presbyterian Journal picked up on an article published in L'Osservatore Romano, the official mouthpiece of the Vatican. The article was quoted as following. The church which Jesus Christ founded as a perfect society with its hierarchy has full powers of real jurisdiction over all the faithful and so has the right to guide, direct, and correct them. A Catholic can never prescind from the teachings and directives of the church. End quote. Time magazine Notice this article as well. Time tried to situate the article in its context. It was written, Time tells us, as a warning to Italian Christian Democrats who were apparently allying themselves with Marxist groups, which was a bridge too far for the Vatican. But in trying to put out a fire in Italy, the Vatican stoked one in America. And so... Senator John F. Kennedy's press secretary rushed to release a statement. Quote, the American office holder is committed by an oath to God to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, which includes Article 1 providing for the separation of church and state. End quote. Now, Kennedy running to be America's first Catholic president, was constantly dogged by the concern that he would only serve as a servant of the Pope, that a Catholic president would never be an American president. Fears over what people called the religious issue were subsiding, however, as Kennedy racked up nine huge victories in primary states. Maybe Protestants would vote for a Catholic president after all. And that's when the Vatican article landed. Horrible timing from Kennedy's perspective. The Catholic Church, it proclaimed, had the right and the duty to intervene in politics in order to shepherd the faithful. Joseph Kennedy, the candidate's father and patriarch of the Kennedy clan, was furious he felt betrayed by the Vatican because he had friends in the Vatican. And now that his son is running for president, now they write something like this? Now they publish something like this? I came home, he wrote, quote, to find the campaign not between a Democrat and a Republican, 
but between a Catholic and a Protestant, end quote. 150 leading ministers, including Billy Graham, formed an organization whose purpose was to express concern over having a Catholic president. Now, many Protestants had believed for so long that the Roman Catholic Church's hierarchy was tyranny, that, in the words of the Presbyterian Journal, quote, once a nation becomes 51% Catholic, the pressure increases, and, as the percentage rises in favor of that church, tolerance recedes and oppression intervenes, end quote. So it was difficult for some to believe that John F. Kennedy meant what he said when he insisted that, as president, he would obey the law of the land. He was swearing an oath to God to uphold the American Constitution. They looked at that as a ruse to secure power, and we wouldn't find out that it was a ruse until it was too late. Now, Kennedy had won every state in the primary elections before the Vatican article was published, and he had at least 57% of the vote in each of those contests. But he only won one of the remaining states after the article was published. Concerns over his Catholicism lingered. Adventists, who had as much theological justification to keep a suspicious eye on a Catholic president than anyone, watched closely. Now, the Vatican article didn't sink Kennedy's ship, as he feared and as many hoped. The editor of an Adventist paper in Britain dryly noted how Kennedy was winning support in America even after the article was published. Quote, These affirmations, the sincerity of which no one would doubt, have apparently satisfied the majority of American voters, but those who know Rome do not believe that even this disposes of the religious issue, end quote. What followed in this article was an elaborate explanation of how the Roman Catholic Church manages to control its members and how Kennedy's denials weren't really denials at all. The Catholic Church, our dear editor wrote, operates by thesis and hypothesis. In some countries, they tell people what to do, and in others, they merely apply pressure, pressure which their agents in high places know how to interpret. So when Kennedy says that he would never accept orders from Rome, our editor tells us that of course he wouldn't. Rome wouldn't order Kennedy to do anything because they don't have a numerical advantage in America. That's not what they would do. They would simply apply pressure, gently, but forcefully, and Kennedy would know what to do. Now, the article concludes by appealing to the well-worn pages of Revelation 13, because doesn't the beast look like a lamb but speak like a dragon? And if anyone on the American political scene in 1960 looked like a lamb, it was John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Now, this article is showing a profound misunderstanding of what an old bishop meant when he proposed the idea of thesis and hypothesis in the 1860s, but I'll let someone doing a Catholic theology podcast tackle that one. The suspicion of Catholicism that undoubtedly led to the misunderstanding guaranteed that the result would be more suspicion. For the more that Kennedy denied that he was a part of some scheme on behalf of his church to take over, the more suspicious he looked. And when he didn't deny that he was part of a scheme, well, 
the more it seemed to confirm his complicity in the eyes of his critics. He couldn't win either way. A month after this article appeared in the British paper, Kennedy visited the Rice Hotel in Houston, Texas, to address the Greater Houston Ministerial Association, a group of Protestant clergy, to clear up what he called and what others called the religious issue. While Adventists had deep concerns about Kennedy as a Catholic president, they were far from the most aggressive Protestants on this issue. Nevertheless, Kennedy's words at the meeting would have been directed towards them, along with other groups. Quote, because I am a Catholic and no Catholic has ever been elected president, the real issues in this campaign have been obscured, perhaps deliberately, in some quarters less responsible than this. End quote. Kennedy was suggesting that the religious issue might be a tool being used or employed by his political enemies to frighten people away from voting for him. And I'm sure that was true, and there were probably many who were very sincere about their concern of him being a Catholic as well. So, Kennedy continued, and, well, I guess let's just let him say it. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote. When no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source. When no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials. And where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. For while this year it may be a Catholic against whom the finger of suspicion is pointed, in other years it has been and may someday be again a Jew or a Quaker or a Unitarian, or a Baptist. It was Virginia's harassment of Baptist preachers, for example, that led to Jefferson's statute of religious freedom. Today I may be the victim, but tomorrow it may be you. Until the whole fabric of our harmonious society is ripped apart at a time of great national peril. Not all Adventists were worried about John F. Kennedy being Catholic. In fact, some Adventists took offense at the anti-Catholic slander being spread around those days. Adventists helped fund and lead a group called, take a deep breath here, Matthew, Protestants and Other Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. And if you think that's a mouthful, don't worry, there's an abbreviation, which is uh, P-O-A-U. Ah. <sighs> Neither of these are very easy. Anyways, the group is now called Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, and it took a radical turn to the left in the intervening years, but, but it wasn't that way in the beginning. P-O-A-U, goodness, I just, I can't stand saying that. <laughs> they cried foul when several anti-Catholic tracts began circulating ahead of Kennedy's election. As the review put it, 
These materials included, quote, an alleged biography of Maria Monk in a Montreal convent, a pamphlet blaming a Roman Catholic conspiracy for the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, and a fraudulent oath which the Knights of Columbus are alleged to take, end quote. Now, when it came to that oath, Adventists were clear, quote, the cause of truth is never served by attempts to defend it with bogus materials. Truth needs no such defense. Therefore, we trust that no Adventist will be a part of circulating the fake Knights of Columbus oath, end quote. The review even took the extraordinary step of publishing the real Knights of Columbus oath, which, yeah, isn't something you would normally expect to read in the review in between articles about the Catholic Church being the beast of Revelation 13. Lewis B. Reynolds, a black Adventist, former editor of Message magazine, wrote that, quote, John F. Kennedy, victim of the most virulent smear propaganda in modern times, was said to be a tool of the Pope and a puppet of the Vatican. It goes without saying that men in public life must perpetually suffer the arrows of criticism, both just and unjust, with something close to gallant forbearance, end quote. Reynolds highlighted the extent to which anti-Catholic literature was spread across the country. He cited a study that listed thousands of reports of unfair anti-Catholic political attacks, including one tract that told people if they voted for a Catholic, they were voting for a dictatorship. And Reynolds labeled all of this literature, all this anti-Catholic literature, as bigoted. Now, Adventists had no love for the Catholic Church and still feared the role that she would play in the last days, but these fraudulent and slanderous claims were too much for church leaders. Besides, Kennedy was shaping up to be a good kind of Catholic. I mean, good as far as Adventists are concerned, and if by good we mean one who fights with the Pope, that's uh, the kind of Catholic which Adventists like. Prominent Catholics began grumbling about Kennedy's distance from the Church. When Kennedy met Pope Paul VI, he didn't kneel and kiss the Pope's ring, as Catholics were expected to do. Instead, he offered his hand for a handshake. And in the closing days of the campaign, Cardinal Spellman of New York made himself clear when he was seen riding in an open car next to Richard Nixon, Kennedy's opponent. Spellman's reason for supporting Nixon was also clear. President John F. Kennedy was opposed to using federal funds for private schools. It was this issue in particular that united Adventists with Kennedy. Stanley Lowell writes, quote, Not in many years had a candidate for the presidency expressed himself so specifically for the separation of church and state. End quote. How ironic that fears over the religious intolerance of the first Catholic president helped turn him, I would argue, into one of the champions of religious liberty in his day. After all, it was President Ronald Reagan who appointed an American ambassador to the Vatican. America's first Catholic president, on the other hand, campaigned against any embassy to the Vatican. It probably helped Adventist's perception of Kennedy that prominent Catholics, like Cardinal Spellman, fumed over Kennedy's stand. America magazine, the Jesuit mouthpiece, complained that Kennedy's policy on religious liberty was, quote, an appeasement of bigots, end quote. And on the front page of the Central Union Reaper, one Adventist made it clear, quote, your president, senator, and congressman need your help. These public servants are being persuaded to grant federal aid to parochial schools. Thus far, 
President J. F. Kennedy has courageously held his ground against vehement attacks, particularly by his own church. End quote. Adventists were being called to side with a Catholic president against the Catholic Church. Welcome to the 1960s. Raymond Cottrell blasted the Catholic bishops in an op-ed in the Review for what he called, quote, the most daring power play ever staged by the Roman Catholic hierarchy in the United States, end quote. President Kennedy's education bill would have banned federal funds to Christian schools, and it was defeated in Congress by a Catholic member. In effect, Cottrell wrote, quote, it was the Roman Catholic bishops of this country who cast the deciding vote, end quote. Cottrell then praised Kennedy for his stand on religious liberty, quote, without this unequivocal stand, Mr. Kennedy would probably never have entered the White House, end quote. But Cottrell didn't end there. You see, this was only the beginning of two months' worth of editorials blasting the Catholic bishops and supporting President Kennedy. Now, I don't know who majority of Adventists voted for in the 1960 election. I would be surprised to find out if a majority of them went with Kennedy. I imagine many of them being social conservatives, and sometimes that leaks over into political conservatism, I would imagine many of them sided with Nixon. And Cottrell here certainly wasn't endorsing all of Kennedy's politics. He, he tried to walk a fine line there. But the review's loud and open support for Kennedy's stand on religious liberty was remarkable. But there was another reason why many Adventists had a high view of President Kennedy. They had a personal connection to him, sort of. You see, a month before Cottrell's editorial onslaught against the bishops, an article appeared in the Australasian record that, that provided a connection between Seventh-day Adventists and Kennedy. Arthur Maxwell, editor of Science of the Times, wrote to the president of the Western Solomon Islands Mission, his name was J.P. Holmes, the president there, asking if any Adventists were involved in Kennedy's rescue. What happened next is fascinating. Now, in case you don't know this famous story about John F. Kennedy, let me get you up to speed. You see, young JFK served in World War II, commanding a PT boat in the Solomon Islands. The PT boats were small. Kennedy's PT-109 was a larger variety at 80 feet long. And just to put that in perspective, the Japanese destroyers, which the PT boats were commonly hunting, were about 350 to 400 feet long. PTs were designed to hunt in packs. They were fast, they were mobile, and they were small. They were designed to swarm an enemy ship, launch a bunch of torpedoes, and then run. Well, on August 1st, 1943, 15 PT boats, including PT-109, were sent to find four Japanese destroyers at night. They carried a total of 60 torpedoes, and the PTs floundered in the dark because only four of the boats had radar, before many of them found the Japanese. But due to a design flaw, none of the torpedoes apparently ever exploded. Kennedy was still lost as some of the boats were heading home. And at 2 a.m., Kennedy and his crew heard a boat coming and assumed it was a fellow PT boat. Wrong. It was a Japanese destroyer. And in the night, they didn't see each other until it was too late. And that destroyer barreled into PT-109, cutting it in half. 
The other PTs in the squadron tried to fire their torpedoes, but it was useless. They either missed or they didn't detonate. And so those PTs retreated and went home, assuming that everyone on PT-109 was dead. Now, Kennedy managed to haul three of his crew to the floating wreckage of his boat, and they hung out in the water for 12 hours. That's right, Jack and Rose from Titanic. That's how you do it. More than one person can hang on to the wreckage, okay? Anyways, as the sun came up, they saw an uninhabited island about three miles away and began swimming. Kennedy pulled one of the men by putting his life jacket strap in his teeth and swimming, pulling him behind him. From island to island, they swam looking for food and often just eating coconuts, which, hey, you know, it's food and drink, right? Kennedy, a former Harvard swim team member, swam ahead, came back, and then would help get others to shore. Finally, on August 5th, four days after the accident, some islanders found Kennedy and his crew, and they were friendly. Needing to send a message back to the Navy without arousing suspicion from any Japanese patrols, Kennedy carved some words inside a coconut and asked the islanders to carry it. Finally, troops arrived on August 8th to rescue Kennedy and his crew. And that's the story most people knew. And there was a lot of interest in this story as Kennedy campaigned and then became president because, I mean, who doesn't like a good war story? This guy was a hero. And Kennedy always humbly, when when told that he was a hero, would just say, you know, the Japanese ran into my boat. (laughs) That doesn't make me a hero. And, you know, that just made people, I guess, like him even more because of that humble take on things. But when the president of the Western Solomon Islands Mission started to ask around to see if anybody there remembers this event, he found that three Adventists were among the eight islanders who had rescued JFK and his crew. The islanders said that they started a fire when they found JFK and his crew and cooked a meal for them. Then they took Kennedy in a canoe. And when Japanese plane was spotted flying low, Kennedy could tell it that it was Japanese from the sound. And so he, he got down low and the canoe laid down and the islanders covered him with leaves. And despite the plane, Sabbath was coming and, and the Adventist islanders who were in the canoe began singing a hymn. Because that's what you do when Sabbath is coming, right? And soon the Methodists, because they knew the hymn, they joined in too. There were some Methodist islanders as well. And then, surprisingly, Kennedy joined him. And in that canoe, hiding from a Japanese plane, a Catholic, some Methodists, and some Adventists worshipped God together. Well, finally, by night, they found the PT boat and transferred Kennedy aboard. And Kennedy, the islander, said, thanked them and waved. The islanders also reported that when Kennedy got aboard this PT boat, the crew teased him about losing his ship. And, you know, that sounds about right. After the Australasian record published this story, other Adventist publications picked it up around the world. In America, Arthur Maxwell, who had been the one to start this whole process by by writing to the president in the Solomon Islands, he published a longer version of the story in November 1961. And by the end of the year, it was estimated that one million people had read this Adventist version of the story. Now, Maxwell didn't stop there. Because with all this interest going around America about Kennedy's heroic story from World War II, Maxwell sent a copy of the Adventist side of the story in Signs of the Times to the White House. After your election, Maxwell wrote President Kennedy, quote, it occurred to me that there might be a great mission story concerning the Solomon Island natives who came to your rescue. Here, surely, is a delightful illustration of interchurch collaboration. 
I cannot imagine anything being of greater interest to religious people of all denominations than the story of how Seventh-day Adventists and Methodists rescued a good Catholic destined to become President of the United States. End quote. Kennedy wrote Maxwell a handwritten note. I was most impressed with the natives and the devoted missionaries who taught them deserve our thanks. Perhaps unaware of what Maxwell had done, other Adventists sent copies of the story to the president as well, and there were plenty of copies to send because the story appeared in a variety of Adventist magazines. Even Junior Guide, a magazine written for younger Adventists, published a version of the story, and on one of those copies, an Adventist scrawled in pencil, We Adventists are proud of this story before mailing it to the White House for Kennedy to see. Feeling emboldened at having received a letter from the President of the United States, Maxwell then sent Kennedy a copy of his newest book, Courage for the Crisis, which did happen to include a nice quote from John F. Kennedy inside. Another letter arrived from the White House showing appreciation for that book. This one was not written by Kennedy, but one of his aides. So Arthur Maxwell decided to push further and send the first volume of his famous series of blue books, The Bible Story, offering to bring the whole set for Caroline and John Jr., JFK and Jackie's children. So on March 2nd, 1962, the president's assistant, John J. McNally, wrote, quote, I will be most happy to accept the 10-volume set of the Bible story for the president's children, end quote. Arthur Maxwell, the British editor of Signs of the Times, was going to the White House. On April 3rd, at 9.30 in the morning, Maxwell met McNally and gave him the books. McNally assured Maxwell that even though Jackie and the kids were in Florida, the books would be flown to them that very afternoon on Air Force One. A few days after the meeting, the president's secretary wrote a letter thanking Maxwell again for the books. Who could have guessed that having a Catholic president would be so interesting to Adventists? Of course, Kennedy's tale is a tragic one. A year and a half after Maxwell visited the White House, Kennedy was assassinated while driving through Dallas. Adventists, like many Americans, paid tribute in ways great and small. A memorial service was held in Pioneer Memorial Church on the campus of Andrews University. Earl Hilgert, professor of the New Testament, gave the eulogy. Quote, his championing of civil rights, his concern for the aged, his patronage of the arts, the image he projected of a warm and wholesome family life, these are the things for which we can rightly cherish the memory of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, end quote. Now, Hilgert was certainly right that it was an image of wholesome family life, that's for sure. <laughs> We've since learned, or in some cases, I guess we can say strongly suspected, that Kennedy had at least a dozen affairs. But in any case, this was not perhaps well known, even if it might have been somewhat suspected. And Kennedy was a hero after his death. A large painting, about three foot by four feet, of Kennedy was then hung in the James White Library's lobby. I wonder where that is. Another tribute was held at the Sligo Church in Tacoma Park on the day of Kennedy's official funeral. Review editor Francis Nichol gave the eulogy here, asking what kind of man was he? Nichol answered, quote, no dark record, no ghosts in the closet, haunt his memory, end quote. Lyndon Johnson, Kennedy's vice president and now president, 
might have begged to differ. But no matter, one wouldn't expect Avenus to follow every political rumor that suggested that Kennedy or his clan had skeletons in their closet. What's interesting is the basis for Nichols's praise of Kennedy. Nichols argues that, quote, the real measure of a great American is how he adds to that slowly accumulating array of great ideals, principles, and actions that have increasingly made America a land of opportunity for all, end quote. Of course, Nickel was thinking of how Kennedy stood up to his own church in opposing federal funds for Christian schools. But Nickel had another example in mind. Quote, President Kennedy calmly and fearlessly also upheld what he consciously believed was the true and evident meaning of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence in the matter of civil rights, end quote. Civil rights. It was hard to ignore Kennedy's stirring words two months before the famous March on Washington. Quote, One hundred years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves, yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully freed. They are not yet freed from the bonds of injustice. They are not yet freed from social and economic oppression. And this nation, for all its hopes and all its boasts, will not be fully free until all its citizens are free, end quote. Francis Nichol, in his eulogy, went on, quote, He took his stand on civil rights at the price of calumny, vilification, and even the risk of political defeat and oblivion. The important point, and the one by which history will measure him, is that he took a stand. He did not waver. He did not vacillate. He stood, end quote. Nickel would praise the islanders who saved Kennedy and his crew. Yes, Nickel said, missions pay. Even at a memorial service, a good Adventist can still make an offering appeal. And in talking about Catholics and Adventists in this episode, the obvious elephant in the room here, the obvious next step in this story is Vatican II. The three years of meetings which completely reshaped the posture of the Catholic Church. There just isn't enough time to get into all of that. And I don't want to spend too much time on this subject. So I think we'll make that into an Adventist History Extra episode in February of 2023. But I find it hard to turn away from Nichols's line about Kennedy and civil rights. That's actually something that Nichols picked up on and Hilger in his eulogy at Andrews picked up on. Yes, campaigning for civil rights is indeed a part of Kennedy's legacy. But is it also a part of the Avenist legacy? The early 1960s were a tumultuous time to be living. The rise and fall of John Fitzgerald Kennedy over the course of three years is only one example of these times in which they're living. And the civil rights movement was another. So next time, we're going to return to the color line. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org. 
or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the the sights and have some fun, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.